Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 17th, 2020 episode, which kind of crosses over into the weekend um, because I had a few interesting conversations over the weekend, so I wanted to add something that I learned from that as well. So today's episode is a medley episode I'm talking about, I think, three distinct uh, stories slash business models. The first one I want to talk about is on a kind of a scuttlebutt I did on the e-commerce market in Indonesia. Just had a friend who was much more familiar from the space and was also a um, employee at one of the big e-commerce giants there. So I wanted to just, I guess, um, get an insight into what the market was like there. Get um, just hear from his experience. And the other topics I want to talk about one is. Well, the second topic will be just a debrief or kind of thoughts I wanted to share, um, interesting tidbits on a podcast series on the Business Wars podcast. Um, this was, a, I believe, a six-part or seven-part series going through the Patagonia versus North Face uh, battle. Not so much a battle, but the rise of both companies during the same time period. And then the final point I want to talk about is about a company called Intuit. If you're familiar with uh, Quicks, QuickBooks Pro, QuickBooks Online, TurboTax, Intuit is the accounting software company that owns all those products. And it's something I, it's just a thought I had after reading through the business model uh, analysis by Scuttle, Scuttleblurb, David Kim and Scuttleblurb. Uh, sorry, Scuttleblurb. <laughs> it's a investing blog that I actually subscribe to. It's one of the few or possibly the only paid one that I actually subscribe to. And I love reading um, all the articles or the essays there. And this was a thought I had. I'm not going to go over everything that David says because it is a paid product and I want to support his business, but more so a thought I had from the learnings I had um, from reading what he thinks about the business model. So that's a bit of a lengthy intro, but just it's also easier for me to talk about that and give an intro so that I also can stay on topic. Anyhow... So the first topic, um, the Indonesian e-commerce market. So I'm not going to reveal who my friend is um, just for privacy's sake. And just going to talk about like the high-level stuff, things that I thought were quite interesting. So the big things I learned were about Tokopedia's business model. Um, Tokopedia is, I believe, the largest e-commerce platform in Indonesia. And I was particularly interested about in Indonesia because they, I think they have something actually i should look this up i just know indonesia has a massive population and they are i believe the largest economy in southeast asia just considering how how many people there are um bear with me for a second i'm just gonna look out their population yeah so they have more than 200 million more than 250 million people uh in indonesia so by population size, you know, it makes them somewhat comparable to the United States, which you just don't think about um, for a South South Asian country. And 
the entire Southeast Asian ecosystem is kind of looked upon as one, you know, giant bucket um, and something I've talked about before in previous podcasts and also my previous interview with uh, Francois Lenewin, who is also very familiar with the South Asian ecosystem, at least from the startup tech, ecos- tech uh, sphere. And so I wanted to learn more about the e-commerce system there because the big players there are not Amazon. It's Tokopedia, Shopee, Lazada, and one other player that I can't pronounce the name of, so I'm not even going to try. And so I just wanted to get familiarity, like what what makes it different? Um, Why is an Amazon the dominant player there? And one thing that was particularly interesting was that Tokopedia does not have warehouses. So if we think about e-commerce companies like Amazon, which is the most prominent one, or even Walmart, um, they all have giant warehouses and they own this whole supply chain and distribution. And, you know, that allows them to have that efficiency that allows them to do these really quick deliveries, right? The one-day delivery, two-day delivery, the, the things that made, you know, Prime so revolutionary, but it turns out Tokopedia, despite being the largest e-commerce platform, they actually don't own a warehouse, nor do they actually hold any inventory for any of their shops. So it, but it's not like Shopify, where Shopify <clears throat> helps, let's say if I want to start a, open a store, I'll just go on Shopify's website and, you know, just like a website builder, just open up my online store that way. But it's not like I'm on Shopify's platform necessarily like it's not like someone goes to shopify.com and then they find all these shops to look at it's more so shopify provides me the software to actually build my own online e-commerce shop just like how squarespace or wix allows me to build a website but tokopedia works kind of like amazon where it's still an aggregated uh marketplace where people just go to tokopedia whatever and they'll look at stores but all the stores there are these virtual stores that are set up by all kinds of merchants all kinds of businesses and the inventory is actually held by them Um, and so they have kind of control over the product shipping and everything but what makes it unique is that the ride sharing service gojek comes into play and something i did not know was so i knew that grab was a big player um their grab is kind of like the like Uber in Southeast Asia. So I've used Grab before in uh, Vietnam. And so I, I know that a lot of the Grab uh, riders actually use uh, mopeds and it's kind of a mix of cars and mopeds. But I, I wasn't familiar with Gojek, which I believe is actually bigger than Grab. So I don't know why I didn't notice it. But at least in Indonesia, Gojek also not only does ride sharing, but they also deliver packages. And because there's so many uh, motorcyclists everywhere, it's just so much more easier just to, I guess, deliver packages by motorbike than by car. And because of the kind of density uh, in Indonesia, people, it's just a quite efficient business model where apparently, according to my friend, when you order packages um, on Tokopedia, it'll get delivered to you within the day, um, sometimes within hours, all through Gojek. And so it's kind of a seamless process apparently where if I were to order something on Tokopedia, um, Gojek is actually notified that this order's in, and then so the Gojek uh, driver will go to the store that I bought something from, um, and then that person will give the package to the Gojek driver, and the Gojek driver will deliver it to me. And so everything just happens uh, quite automatically and seamlessly. And so for the store owner, they don't really have to care about the supply chain much because that's taken care of by Gojek. They just need to have the product. And 
Gojek, I, I believe, will probably get something like a cut of um, a cut from Tokopedia in some way. But when I inquired about the business model of Tokopedia, they don't actually make commissions on the sales that happen on their marketplace because that's what I assume that an e-commerce company would do. Um, like if I had a store and I made a sale through the Tokopedia platform, I'd imagine that, yeah, Tokopedia would probably take maybe, you know, 3% cut off of the sale I had just like a credit card company does um, whenever someone pays with Visa, for example. But it turns out Tokopedia doesn't do that, um, at least from my skull. But it's their way of making money. Their business model is primarily through advertising, uh, much like Google does. And they also make money by... I guess allowing certain stores to pay pay for like a service where they kind of become a quote unquote like a premium or like a pro store, you know, where maybe they'll be more easily uh, searchable, discoverable, etc. But the fact that they don't actually take a cut um, off the merchant sale makes, I guess, kind of incentivizes merchants so that yeah, like of course I put. <laughs> put my store up on Tokopedia, why wouldn't I? Um, because I don't lose any money and I just get access to this massive distribution channel. And I think the biggest surprise or interesting factor for me was just how the delivery system works. Just Because you can actually create an e-commerce platform without having to invest into any of the costly, like the fixed costs of running a warehouse and having all these kind of operational distribution facilities. And you're actually relying on another company um, that is purely ride-sharing, but they've also incorporated this whole packaging delivery system. So in essence, you've also been able to kind of, you know, what is that? Not disrupt. I don't know how disruptive it was for the um, incumbents, but still, it's like saying, at least in Canada, we have Canada Post, we have DHL. Um, It's like saying you don't need those anymore and you just pay people to just constantly just deliver packages instead of relying on these postal services. So I found that to be quite fascinating. Um, I don't know how replicable that would be in North America. I think it'd be really hard given how we're not really as dense, like our cities aren't as dense, maybe New York possibly. But even then, um, I think the culture is just so different that it just won't be as applicable. I think another thing that was fascinating was um, the iteration that my source put on, which is that Indonesia's population, although it's a really large population, um, they it's still very uneducated in terms of technology. Like they're not very familiar with e-commerce and how it actually works. And I think that is a, is a very fascinating piece where you have this huge population, and people talk about it all the time, like the trend of you know Southeast Asia coming online, all these developing countries coming online. But specifically about how much money it might actually take and how much time it might actually take to educate the population on what e-commerce actually is, how it works, um, and then to kind of get themselves familiar on the idea of setting up a store, being you know running your own business. And I found that all to be very exciting and also very interesting in terms of um, how that actually is a big factor that the com- companies continuously like think about and. What else? Something else I um, noticed is how I I guess this is similar to the UK, where in the UK, if you're familiar, they had a, I don't know if it still exists, but back when I was in university, it was popular to shop off of ASOS, ASOS.com, I think. 
Um, and that was kind of the place to buy all kinds of um, clothing. And it had various brands. So it was an e-commerce site that had all these kinds of um, closing sites, clothing to buy off of. And I know there were a couple of stores that were or websites that are South, South Korean based that a lot of my friends utilized as well back when I lived in Vancouver. And it turns out in Indonesia, Lazada does exactly that. They are they have a brand that's focused on fashion. And Tokopedia is in charge of kind of everything else. So whenever someone thinks about buying clothes, apparently they just go immediately to Lazada. Um, although it's not the dominant platform, I think they are the fourth largest behind Shopee and the one that I can't pronounce. Um, they seem to kind of have this mind share that they are the place to go to for anything clothing style related. Whereas Tokopedia is the kind of place to go for everything else, kind of like Amazon. Um and apparently in the public in Indonesia, there is kind of a brand perception in to- of Tokopedia where it's supposed to be a company for the people. It's a company created for the people and f- for a country that uh, has a huge disparity um, in wealth where there, I-, I believe the wealth distribution um, disparity between the middle class and lower class is extremely large. Um, the people in the lower class look at Tokopedia extremely positively. And because they make up a majority of the population, that is a pretty, um, I'd say that's a pretty interesting kind of development where you would imagine that brand loyalty would be pretty strong in that majority of the population that already feels neglected. And then you have a company that says, um, you know, we are the company for you. We're the company for the people, um, for the majority of people in Indonesia. So that's kind of something, some things I took away from my conversation with my friend and the next topic, um, so this was, I think I said it's a six-part podcast uh, on a podcast called Business Wars, and I think I talked about, I forget, I talked about one story from this podcast before. Um, it's it's a podcast I've, I've pretty enjoyed. Oh, I, I talked about the Uber and Lyft series, which I thought was pretty interesting. And they have a, they have a bunch of these series, and I think, once again, it's a pretty cool podcast to look, look into if you want to look at what I'd say a very high level of business stories. Um, I think the podcast could do, if I were to give a criticism, they could do a better job of giving, I think, more depth into um, the actual business model and financials to kind of give context because sometimes it just sounds a little more like a TV drama in many cases, and maybe that's the intention. But it sometimes, I feel, pulls away from understanding how significant certain decisions and effects are. Anyhow... The things I want to pull away was that I had no idea the relationship that Patagonia and the North Face actually had. Where, So I, I know of Patagonia through the founder, Yvonne Chouinard, and he's quite well known as being quite um, unconventional and unusual in his business strategy. And the way I know Patagonia is because of their very unique culture. And that's kind of why I'm a customer of Patagonia, because I, I'm a big fan of the corporate culture that they have, which is definitely unusual by many means. Um, but it turns out the, the founder of the North Face, Douglas Tompkins, was act, is actually a friend of Yvonne Chouinard, and they actually went climbing um, like the Canadian Rockies together. So, And apparently the North Face was founded first, and Tompkins got Chouinard to supply a lot of these climbing equipments that Chouinard would actually make in his own, um, I don't know, workshop let's say so Sh- Chouinard would actually make these climbing equipments like these climbing picks I believe that they're called 
or no, sorry, pitons. These climbing pitons, like Shinar would actually make them in his workshop. And yeah, they would actually sell it on the North Face. And eventually, um, the business was not doing too well. So Tompkins sold the North Face to Hap Klopp for, I believe, something like 60,000. No, Douglas Tompkins sold the North Face to some student, these two entrepreneurial students for 50,000 who couldn't really turn it around. So then those students sold it to Hap Klopp for $60,000. And then Hap Klopp eventually sold the North Face to, um, I think it was Odyssey International, which then sold it to VF Corp, uh, which owns uh, companies like, uh, I believe, Lee Jeans, um, Wrangler, and uh, Jansport back, uh, Backpacks. I don't know. If they're, I believe they're still owned by VF Corp. Um, but still, I thought the founding story was quite unique where Chouinard and Tompkins were already friends. And so there's this kind of uh, relationship of Patagonia and the North Face. And yeah, so like the Patagonia story is that, yeah, Chouinard would sell pitons to the North Face. And then he started his own company, uh, Chouinard Equipments, I believe. And then Patagonia came out as like an offspring of Chouinard Equipments because they realized they wanted to make clothes or sell these clothes for climbers. And that was a higher margin business. And uh, Chouinard didn't want to sell pitons anymore because he was actually not very uh, friendly to the climbing ecosystem because it was damaging all the surfaces for on you know these cliffs that they were climbing on. And that's how kind of Patagonia was born. Um, and obviously there's a story where Chouinard actually traveled to Patagonia and it kind of encompassed the kind of brand and company that they wanted to create. And the podcast will kind of go over, I think, in detail, in a very entertaining way, the stories of creating the businesses that I won't really touch upon too much. I think the the big thing, the two things that I want to touch upon were, um, first, how a company tries to control the brand in a top-down manner, but that's not always how it... Um, comes out to be so when i think about patagonia i think many hardcore fans of patagonia know about their huge environmental uh, mission you know they are constantly looking to conserve the environment and um, a lot of their raw materials are focused on things that are sustainable things that have been recycled and so there's a constant ethos around that and that's kind of been the big mission of yvonne chenard's um as far as north the north face goes I think some people could say that, yeah, they are kind of more the winter outdoor sports brand. Um, that's kind of what you think about, like alpine skiing. That's kind of what you think about. And there's also, but when you look at the world right now, um, or at least what I've seen is that there are times when a brand, despite the image that, you know, the founders and the business uh, culture wants to kind of convey to the mass public um it sometimes doesn't work out that way so for example like i think in the world that i come from like the business world patagonia uh is worn by all the kind of you know it's the image that people have is of wall street uh where patagonia vests are worn by hedge fund managers and i think that's kind of how it originated and i think a bunch of venture capitalists want to kind of fit in with that mold and so then they end up wearing all these patagonia vests so then you kind of see everybody every vc wearing a patagonia vest and then all the startups think is a cool thing so then all the startups and the big you know venture funded tech companies start creating swag that has patagonia vests and patagonia sweatshirts so like you know i've seen friends at uber with all the kind of patagonia swag everywhere and which 
you know, it's I find it ironic where you have a company whose entire mission is focused on, in you know, focusing on the environment and just being very responsible, whereas the people who wear it and uh, I guess kind of advertise it are not the companies nor the people who really care <laughs> so much about that. It's the people who are so focused on money, profit, and corporate greed in many cases. Um, so I just find that quite ironic. Like I think the the joke I had with my accounting friends is that um, you just know that the Patagonia brand just got completely deteriorated when you see a bunch of accountants start wearing Patagonia vests with, you know, like one of the big four name brands on it. And it, it just goes so, uh, it, it makes you wonder like, yeah, it's so weird seeing all these people who've probably never actually gone hiking before, who don't even like going outdoors, wear all these kind of Patagonia swag. Like you see all these law firms, um, have these Patagonia branded vests as well. So it's just kind of become a symbol of more, kind of corporate status of elitism in one way. And so I've always been very critical of that. And a uh, buddy in Silicon Valley was telling me how they call it Patagucci that, down there as well because of how um, the brands kind of tilted to that kind of view. But something else I learned was about how when North Face was actually thinking about creating their brand, and I think this might have been under, it's, it was a tradition. So when it was under Hap Klopp, they had to think about ways of kind of building their North Face up because they were also having uh, trouble. And I think that's when they first started looking into uh, like downhill skiing, alpine skiing, where, um, and that kind of became a focus, I think, under Odyssey International. And something they noticed is that um, despite the clothing being designed for you know high-performance skiing, it was being worn by rappers and so like the Wu-Tang Clan would wear it and you had all these kind of very famous rappers where uh, just North Face you know these puffy North Face jackets and North Face pants and eventually like the executives of the North Face noticed how like gangsters like drug dealers on the street were wearing all these like they were just decked out in North Face gear and when they interviewed them uh, it turns out it's just you know easier to hide things inside the deep pockets that the North Face equipment had. And it also made you look more intimidating and it made you look bigger. And so it just became this jacket of choice. And so once again, it's just funny how the North Face intended their brand to be something for skiers. And that was still a very niche audience, but there's this kind of bigger mass appeal of it becoming a clothing for you know people in gangs or people who want to quote unquote look cool. I remember, like I realized that um, even when I was in high school, yeah, like all these kind of, you know, quote unquote Asian gangsters and people who are actually in um, these kind of Asian gangs or, you know, high school friends who just wanted to pose and look like they were in gangs would all just be decked out in North Face. Like that was the thing to wear. Everybody had these puffy North Face jackets that just made you, quote unquote, look cool. And it's just funny to see how, um, although like your brand image would still resonate really strongly to a niche group on a mass adoption basis uh, it can kind of morph into different ways it's a weird kind of bottom-up um, creation of a brand image so I thought that was quite interesting how both companies stood for comp- some, something completely different that were uh, interpreted in a mass appeal way in a very different fashion and then the final thing I thought was pretty cool and admirable was just once again I've just always been a fan of Yvonne Chouinard's very unusual style of business strategy and the podcast series kind of goes deeper into that. Just, just all this idea of, you know, you, you just think it's crazy for some CEOs to do, but for Chouinard, it was constantly just finding ways to stop growing because um, although, you know, 
the products are very environmentally friendly and they're created from these um, amazing materials that once again actually are also so much more expensive than like you know cheaper cotton or cheaper like polyester that um, Patagonia kept on actually slashing their own margins because they wanted to get higher quality material. So in one way, that could be considered crazy for companies where they're like, how, why do you want to ever lower your profit margins and operate our gross margins? But that's what Patagonia chose to do to continuously stay focused on the mission that they had. But what happened was that they ended up kind of overcoming all that loss in um, profits through the decline in margins through more volume because more people believed in what Patagonia is doing because they're constantly doubling down on this philosophy that they had, but also Yvonne um, Schoenner kept them focusing on like trying to stop growth. Like they apparently pulled out of wholesale because they were growing too fast. So then they would only try to sell Patagonia stuff now in stores that they actually owned and operated. That was a intention to not really control the brand so much, but to stop growing so quickly, stop um, them from selling so many clothes because Schoenner never wanted to have a large company. And there's also these continuous kind of uh, campaigns that they would run and strategies where they would try to, they would advertise like, stop, don't buy this jacket um, because they wanted to stop people from buying jackets and stop people from buying more products. And so they would tell them why they probably don't need to buy this, make customers think twice about buying something so that they're really sure that they want this particular product. They would, they instituted the recycle program. So customers would recycle all the um, Patagonia wear that they don't want to wear anymore. And then something else they realize is like, oh, well, that's actually resulting in people buying more because they know they can recycle. So then they would institute things like, you know, maybe we'll teach you how to fix your jacket so that you don't have to buy a new one. It's just all these things that just seem so counterintuitive that just make me more excited about the company um, because it's just so rooted in why the company exists, um, the culture behind it, because everybody in the company is also in agreement with these kind of strategies like some of the more, I guess, more profit-oriented people ended not being in agreement with it, but eventually everyone kind of believes in the same mission, which I think just makes it a very remarkable company. So that was the kind of series and what I kind of took away from it. Um, it was pretty fun, and I'd recommend you look into it if you're just curious about the two brands itself. And then finally, just um, this one's a very brief one, something I thought about when learning about Intuit through the Skullblur article. So Intuit... Um, there's a company that I think I mentioned um, they have the products like QuickBooks Pro and TurboTax like that's what I know them from and they're practically an accounting software company for small businesses that's kind of their target market because you're not going to see enterprise companies use you know QuickBooks, uh, QuickBooks or TurboTax right and the big thing I took away was how because I was always curious like why do you know why are there these prominent hedge funds that I know about prominent investors that like investing in Intuit. Um, and I think given my knowledge of, you know, ERP systems and stuff, I could see it being, yeah, maybe it's the stickiness factor, you know, how when you have an accounting system inside, like it's the switching costs are probably high. And, but some things I learned and thought about from reading the article was how because Intuit focuses on small businesses and kind of self-employed individuals. So you're, you know, you're looking at companies with, you know, maybe two to 20 people, for example, right? And so they make up a good chunk of the uh, of the Intuit customer base and also how I, what I didn't realize is that the market still is kind of relatively underpenetrated. Um, I think the penetration of, uh, I'm just going off the top of my head. I'm not quoting the article. So if I get it wrong, I apologize. But it 
it was like under 20% of the comp- small businesses that use accounting software um, or small businesses actually use accounting software, um, something like QuickBooks or, you know, other competitors like Xero, XERO, or uh, I can think of like, you know, maybe FreshBooks or like Wave Accounting. These are all uh, softwares that I can think about that other small businesses might use, but it seems that overall the market um predominantly has people kind of do it in a do-it-yourself kind of way they use excel in many cases and so it's still a very underpenetrated market that intuit is targeting and it's a very large market because if you think about you know the small businesses out there or small and medium businesses you know they say they're the backbone of the american economy and you know they do make up a good chunk so it seems like there is a large market opportunity constantly and so i think that might be a common thesis that people have of investing in intuit but it constantly made me think about why would people use Intuit over other accounting softwares? And, you know, is, is the business really that predictable and stable? Um, because that's another argument people make with how, you know, as they transition into the software side of things, it became more recurring because, you know, it became more of a subscription-based service instead of a license, a perpetual license service that it used to be when you, you know, bought these CDs with TurboTax software in it. Um, and it, I got the impression from the article that, you know, the big thing that Intuit had was the brand. Um, but in one way, then it makes me question, well, yeah, like, it's true. Like, they don't seem to have much in maybe like switching costs in one way, because if you're a product that focuses on small, medium businesses, there's this massive churn factor. Because once again, the thing with small, medium businesses is that they have a much higher failure rate than large companies. So the the stickiness factor is actually in one way much more important for enterprise level uh, software and products because those companies have a much longer lifespan and their failure rate is much lower compared to small businesses which can go out of business relatively quickly because it's also much simpler to start them. So it it made me think once differently about um, switching costs in that aspect where yeah maybe it's not as relevant for a small business accounting software. So then maybe it's the brand. And is that is that why people choose to first use Intuit? And, you know, once you choose to use it, yeah, then I can see them maybe sticking around. But once again, the churn would be relatively higher. Like you would, I think Intuit had something like an 80, something approximately like an 80% to 85% churn rate um, because more likely customers were kind of going out of business or they might be upgrading to, uh, I guess, maybe more advanced software. And... So that requires the brand to be so strong that you don't have to constantly spend on sales and marketing to compete with for business for more of the you know new small businesses that are being created. But it seems like Intuit constantly has to spend to acquire customers. So in one way, their brand probably might not be as strong. Like if I were to start a company uh, and I need an accounting software, you know, why would I use QuickBooks Pro? Yeah, maybe it it's because it's been around longer, so maybe I trust it. But at the same time, I'd probably just go on all these review sites to see which one's better. Um, and yeah, so yeah, like I feel like when you kind of get past certain stage, it becomes negligible, whether it's QuickBooks or Zero or, you know, FreshBooks. It, they might all end up doing the same thing. So I just wonder what advantage they truly have. And it just made me think differently about accounting softwares for small, medium businesses because it's it's not the same thing as an accounting software for a large enterprise, for example. And that might be obvious, but for me, it's more of um, kind of a lightning thought that I had. 
So yeah, those are things I want to talk about and share. Um, it just made me think differently about the business. And it made me think that the business is not as resilient as I think people make it seem. Um, so yeah, that's the, those those were the learnings from the Friday week plus weekend period. And I hope this was interesting. Hope this was fun. And yeah, hope to have you back on as a listener for the show tomorrow. Take care.